Thanks, guys. I'll try to be as short as possible today. So up until around two years ago, I worked in a practice of six practitioners. We were doing no postpartum screening. If a woman self-identified herself as such during uh, the initial visit, the one-month visit, we assessed and we referred, but we did no screening. About two years ago, we had an academic detailing session through CHDI. They do a, a whole group of educational sessions called Ethics, Education Practitioners in the Community, and one of which was on postpartum depression. Uh, briefly, they taught us how to uh, embed the Edinburgh screening device within our practice, which is an evidence-based screening for postpartum depression. We now do it at uh, one month, two months, and four months. Since that period of time, uh, we've identified approximately 20 to 30 women. As part of our educational succession, we were given resources. We have a group of uh, private practitioners east of the river who specialize in postpartum depression, and now we use the Institute of Women as well. Just some other add-ons about this whole process. Uh, once we describe what we do during our prenatal visits, and during our initial visits to the both parents that we are doing postpartum screening, uh, there are smiles that go up. I think what we have done is, is created an entry point to an otherwise forbidden topic in the issue of pediatric care. Uh, I don't think there was ever a comfort level that mothers and fathers felt that they could speak to their pediatrician about such a humbling but very important topic. And I think that's been a real plus. The other thing that I would add on to this is that we've taken now, and we up until three years ago, when I would take a medical history, I would not involve much of a mental health history of mother and dad during either the prenatal or the initial visit. I am humbled and shocked by when I now take a mental health history, I probably get a return of anywhere between 20 and 30 percent of the moms and dads who give me a very strong history of having suffered from depression, anxiety, or other mood disorders which is very important, not only in terms of the care of the infant, but in terms of the longitudinal care of that child as they get older. And I would also add that uh, in pediatrics, we very rarely get paid and billed for doing very good things. And this is one area where we have, you can actually bill out for the Edinburgh and bill out just as we do the NCHAP, so it's a win-win for all of us. I want to thank you all for teaching us, and I look forward to your talk today. Socioeconomically stressed environment, that percentage doubles to 
That's a huge number of moms. There's no doubt, as you were saying, Dr. Spiegelman, that every practice here, every clinician here has experienced a mom in postpartum depression. That brings up the second point. There's moms out in the audience, and dads too. I just want to say a trigger alert. Even though I've heard Heather talk multiple times in multiple settings from TV to a grand rounds of the OBs last fall, any moms that might be sensitized, or dads, sensitized to this subject, please be aware. So hearing someone describe, in Heather's case, postpartum depression that led to a postpartum psychosis, very serious emergency situation, only 1% of the population, relatively rare, but still very serious and could be impactful. So just be mindful of that. The last point I want to mention is really our, our hope today with uh, this really a three-part presentation. So I'm kind of doing an intro. Dr. Zajac is going to explain a bit about mother and infants and attachment and give a couple of different ideas, expanding on what Dr. Spiegelman said on how critical this topic is for you all as pediatricians. Uh, the second part, Heather is going to say her story. This is really the, the meat, the bulk of our presentation. Listening to Heather's experience, I think, will be um, very, very important. And I'm going to then kind of hopefully simplify some of this at the end and try to say some different ideas on what you might do with assessment. The idea is not to turn you all into uh, nurse practitioners or psychiatrists, but just to have some general ideas on how to assess moms and then the next step, who to call and what to do. So let me introduce Dr. Zajac for her initial part of the presentation. Sometimes we use the word flat. 
could surmise that this mom was depressed. And depression with the outside external aspect can last for hours, it can last for days, weeks, or months. And so then I want you to imagine being the baby in that situation. Babies need stimulation, so what's happening when their primary person, their mom, has the flat affect all the time? I'd like to share with you a video, some of you may know it, it's called The Still Face Experiment by Dr. Tronic, it's been around a long time. Uh, as Art mentioned earlier, it might be a little bit difficult to watch, so please bear with me, we'll talk a little bit about it when it finishes. Babies this young are extremely This is something that we started studying um, 34 years ago when people didn't think that infants could engage in social interaction. In the still face experiment, what the mother did was she sits down and she's playing with her baby who's about a year of age. I like a girl. And she gives a greeting to the baby, the baby gives a greeting back to her. This baby starts pointing at different places in the world and the mother's trying to engage her and play with her. They're working to coordinate their emotions and their intentions, what they want to do in the world. And that's really what the baby is used to. And then we ask the mother to not respond to the baby. The baby very quickly picks up on this. And then she uses all of her abilities to try and get the mother back. She smiles at the mother. She points because she's used to the mother looking where she points. The baby puts both hands up in front of her and says, what's happening here? She makes that screechy sound at the mother, like, Come on, why aren't we doing this? Even in this two minutes when they don't get the normal reaction, they react with negative emotions, they turn away, they feel the stress of it, they actually may lose control of their posture because of the stress that they're experiencing.
and how devastating they can be for the mother, the child, and the family. I've spoken at UConn, the Institute of Living, and OB Grand Rounds, um, and on Channel 3, in an effort to make postpartum depression and psychosis tangible. What does it look and feel like? How can you recognize what is going on? Reaching out to moms just like me who are suffering, let them know that they are not alone. What they are experiencing is more common and widespread than they realize, a common complication of birth. I also share my experience to promote the peritardum mood disorder program right here at the Institute of Living an amazing resource that I was in desperate need of six years ago. I am shocked and saddened by the number of women who reach out to me after a presentation such as this, stating how they suffered in silence with no resources. Those who have approached me with their personal experiences are social workers, psychic PRNs, colleagues, physicians, and friends. Postpartum depression nearly took the life of my newborn son my life, and my marriage. For most women, their experience of postpartum depression is a deep, dark secret. For me, it is my survival story. I work at Hartford Hospital, as Dr. Nimrod said, supporting Jack Kane, and Cheryl Picard, Vice President of Patient Care Services. But for today, I am the mother of your patient. I am the face of postpartum psychosis. I'm here today to talk about something so painful I can barely think about it and something equally hard for people to hear. But it is of vital importance for us to discuss. For today's talk, I will provide an overview of what I experienced and how I think we could have helped. I wish to bring awareness to what too many children, women, and their families are struggling with. I want to help you notice the signs and ask the questions. When I see this image of the iceberg, it speaks so strongly to what I was feeling after Sean was born. I tried my best to appear normal and happy on the outside, but what lied underneath was dark and cruel. It's so hard to give a voice to the incessant thoughts and worries that I was having, so I suffered in silence. Impulses so gruesome that I couldn't tell my husband. I didn't want to disappoint my OB, but I desperately wanted to tell Sean's pediatrician. For some reason, I felt so strongly that you should know that I was struggling to care for him, that I could not meet his needs. I remember in my head saying, ask me how I'm doing. Please see that I need help, that you need more than I can give. I have a seven-year-old son, Jack, born vaginally, vaginally in August of 2009, and this is Sean, born by C-section in December of 2010. Postpartum psychosis robbed me of one year of my life, and the year after that was a series of realization, shock, guilt, horror, and having to feel everything that was void inside of me the first year of Sean's life. Sean's third year of life, I started to find myself again. I have self-diagnosed what I went through as postpartum psychosis. My husband, Jack, and I went through it completely alone. This is our story, or what I refer to as the lost year. Jack's birth, our first son, was wonderful and everything it should be. 
Sean's was not right from the beginning. December 28, 2010, around 12.30 p.m., the doctors are concerned about how big Sean was going to be, felt the C-section would be best. I was nervous, but you have no choice but to stay calm. I remember the OR, arms outstretched, wrists in cuffs, just shutting my mind off to what they were doing. I remember feeling them pull him out of me. There I lay, sliced open and empty. Sean was born. There is so much that I don't remember, but these are the slivers that stand out. Going home, I just wanted to take narcotics and sleep. I remember my mom saying that I hadn't helped Sean, my days old baby, all day. My eyes were empty, void of emotion. I felt gray and lifeless. I would sit and stare ahead into nothingness. One night, Jeff, my husband, came home to me sitting in the middle of the kitchen floor. I was flat, no affect. The boys were crying and screaming in the background. I had nothing to give. I remember with Jack, I didn't want to let him go, and I had an eagle eye on anyone who held him. All new moms have worries, anxieties, thoughts. I remember with Jack worrying and worrying that I would drop him on the concrete ground. With Sean, it was much different. I had impulses. These impulses went much farther than just thoughts. They were like knee-jerk reactions to do something that I had to control. Even today, I wonder what stands between an impulse and an action. I was lost somewhere in that space. I had impulses to drown Sean in the washing machine, to throw hot coffee on his face, to suffocate him with a pillow. I could see him struggling and hear his muffled screams. I had to hold myself back from doing it. The thoughts were overpowering. I was completely detached. I remember bathing him, struggling with the impulse to hold him underwater. I envisioned my arm holding him down, watching him struggle. Coming out of it, I saw him smiling and playing in the water. I struggled to bathe him regularly. I remember dropping him off at daycare, worried that he smelled, worried that people could see what a horrible mom I was. My reality was shattered. I would question if I had just done something to him. I felt like I was going crazy. My mom finally came to visit. I remember holding Sean away from me like a wet blanket. I remember her looking at me and knowing. Nothing was said, nothing was done. I remember not loving him, having no feelings towards him whatsoever for the first year of his life. I was blunt, no affect, removed. It was the most unnatural and agonizing thing. I have no memory of feeding him, holding him, laying him down in his crib. I was relieved when the impulses to harm Sean turned to harming me. I remember trying to get help and feeling as if no one wanted to own me. No one was scratching the surface to see if I was okay. There was no Edinburgh scale given to me, no questions about how I was feeling or coping as a new mom. After suffering, suffering in silence for about six months, I finally told my OB. For the first time, I let the words come out of my mouth, words that I could not even say to my husband. I told him about the really bad thoughts to kill my child and myself. He did not seem to react. He did not ask me any questions. I remember leaving, wondering if he heard me, repeating what I said over and over again in my head. 
and felt like no one was as alarmed as I knew they should be. I remember leaving the appointment and saying, oh my God, he could have called from CF on me. I can't believe I just admitted all that. It was the first time I said it all out loud. Luckily, the doctor was listening, and the psychiatrist called to see me that same night. He immediately put me on Lexapro and Risperidone. I needed more than just an antidepressant. I could not believe that I was on an antipsychotic. I felt shame and embarrassment, snowed with meds, so I could survive in the dark abyss of Sean's first year of life. But the meds were my saving grace. They kept me and my family alive. As we started to talk about what was going on, there was no one for me or my husband to go, nowhere for me and my husband to go, and no one was reaching out, offering reasoning, support, or even acknowledgement of what we were going through. The signs of a struggle and what to look for. Looking back at the picture of me in the hospital holding Sean, there was something missing in my eyes. I was gray, lifeless. I wasn't there. It wasn't me. I gave up breastfeeding almost immediately with Sean. No one talked to me about trying again. I breastfed Jack. Going back to the age of the iceberg, when they started to drop breadcrumbs to medical providers that things were not okay before I blurted it all out, I was just told to go home and have a glass of wine. I was told that it was normal to be let down as your second child. I say this in the hopes that when you interact with a mother or child, and feel like something is not right, that you will remember the iceberg. I acknowledge that this is common, treatable, a complication of birth. There are resources and help. Know that if someone has the courage to say something isn't right, it's probably more severe than you know. There's a great quote from Brooke Shields, who's already normalized what she was going through. In a strange way, it was comforting to me when my obstetrician told me that my feelings of extreme despair and my suicidal thoughts were directly tied to a biochemical shift in my body. Once we admit that postpartum is a serious medical condition, then the treatment becomes more available and socially acceptable. In the Peripartum Mood Disorder Center, we created this brochure that I titled, When Being a Mom Doesn't Feel Like It Should. Words like this help open the door to what more is going on. What help is needed for mom and the baby? Use the Edinburgh scale. Listen to the father, to the family. Today, my heart overfills with love for Sean every day more and more. No one can tell me why this happened to me. We can't pinpoint when it started or how. It was there at the moment of birth, maybe before. I was self-consumed in the darkness of depression. I was completely unavailable to my husband in every way. I was more connected with Jack, but still not myself. I wish Sean, Sean was born vaginally. I wish I breastfed him. I wish I loved him from the moment he was placed in my arms. I wish I was a better mom to him. He deserves so much more. It took a solid year just to survive. The second year of his life was slowly realizing what I had been through and the wreckage all around me. Failing marriage, a child that I was just starting to like, getting off the meds, finding myself, forgiving myself, and realizing the effect all this had on my husband. I had to feel all those emotions that were drowning in despair during that lost year. 
Heather and I still struggle with what we went through and worry about how it will affect Sean. I'm here today talking about this in the hopes that we can understand postpartum depression and ask the questions to help the next woman who has to face this darkness find the light. Postpartum Support International sums up what moms need to hear. You are not alone. You are not to blame. With help, you will get better. My husband, Jeff, was not able to be here today, but I wanted to quickly go over his slides because the voice of the husband and the family is so important. Jeff talks about the missing piece. Everything in our life fit together until the postpartum. He talks about the distance that he could see when I was with Sean, not wanting to hold him, my strong desire to get back to work even though I had more maternity time. I was guarded and defensive, disinterested in connecting with him or Sean. The word that pops out to me in the last bullet is visibly, something you can see. He could see me out of control with my emotions and fighting something that I was not aware of. He was scared to leave me alone. Our marriage suffered. We grew apart to the point I did not realize that he was smoking again. We are a whisper away from divorce. His own anxiety surfaced and became an issue, ripple effect of postpartum. Our family was crumbling. We were desperate for help, for answers, for someone to listen. Today there is someone listening. A team of experts at, from Hartford Hospital and the Institute of Living have built the Peripartum Mood Disorder Program. We are your handoff so you can feel safe asking the question when your gut tells you that something isn't right. I'd now like to hand it off to Art Vera, Director of the Peripartum Mood Disorder Program. each time how emotionally I'm moved by her talk, how it changes, and the intensity of it changes, but the message stays the same. We're lucky to have Heather and Sean here today. This was a very, very serious event that she experienced and was able to, I thought I had this on, me, apologies, a very serious event that she was able to navigate alone. And, and you wonder, I'm deviating a bit from, from my slides for a moment. As we're standing waiting for that, I won't mention the name of the individual, someone walked up to me and said basically, Heather's story, not to that same extreme degree, but a similar story, that she wished she had resources when she was a mom. In fact, several different providers had assessed this lady and not really noticed anything, yet she felt functionally different. It was beyond baby blues, which of course is everyone might experience to a certain degree, but is time-limited, has a lower intensity. There might be tearfulness, sadness. This mom described a similar experience to her and eventually got help at the first OB appointment. And I think that's really what we're talking about today, is trying to intervene early. But there's, there's impediments for moms asking for help. You talked about expectations. There's a lot of expectations, as you all know, on moms to have a wonderful experience, to have a healthy child, you have time off. From 
work. All these things are positive, framed in such a positive way. You should be so happy. It's hard for moms to be able to say that they're not happy, that this experience is not meeting their expectation, that they themselves feel horrible inside. Finding the words to say that isn't simple for many moms. So you think about the intensity and the um, long-standing nature of the depressive symptoms. So you're expecting baby blues to kind of go away. And here you are one to two weeks plus beyond that, and the intensity is increasing as opposed to decreasing. And, and what do you do with that? Many moms that, again, if someone has had a pre-existing illness, and Dr. Stephen, you spoke about this in doing a mental health assessment, they may recognize that they're getting into deep water. They may be able to, to, to reach out for help. Unfortunately, in our program, we've experienced many clinicians who take moms off of psychotropic medication for fear that that psychotropic medication will harm the fetus. Now, there are obviously risks attached for moms and fetuses having medication during pregnancy. But one of the big risks of just taking a mom who has a pre-existing illness off of medication is that they might have a, a, a rebound of anxiety, depression, or even psychosis during or even after their pregnancy. The idea that moms that might not have experienced a pre-existing illness, Heather, I think you're a case of this. So this was all brand new to you. It was a shock and a surprise at a time in your life where you're supposed to be the happiest with a healthy baby. And again, a second child, so you had a sense of what to expect, and it was totally different, and you didn't really have the words. And I think that's why we have to, we have to really recognize or help find words for moms to know baby blues to depression, to be able to make that, to make that assessment. And fathers, let's not uh, move on here. 10% of dads have postpartum depression. My guess is that that's an underreported symptom. So you have... Um, you have sympathy pains that a dad might experience in pregnancy. Does that happen with depression? Um, again, there's a lot of theories or ideas around this. Just know statistically it's not just moms that will have a postpartum mood disorder. And what a tough situation for two parents to be depressed, say with their first brand new infant at home. And what a terrible situation for that child and the parent. Absolutely overwhelming. So the, we've talked about the Edinburgh, and many of you are probably using the Edinburgh. And I want to just zero in on one question. I, I should say the following, and I think I'll get to this in another slide. You might know this. Not everyone answers a questionnaire accurately. Again, getting back to this idea of shame or, or blame, many, many moms have told, have told me that they want to please their OB, they want to please their pediatrician, they want family to think, that everything's okay. They want to believe everything's okay. Looking at the Edinburgh scale, what percentage actually accurately um, fills out that evaluation tool? I've sat with moms in my office who are crying saying everything's okay. I've had to say, then why did you come here today? Never mind that. Look, you're crying in front of me. Everything's not okay. Yet they persisted with, no, I'm fine. And, and it took time to help intervene, to have them see what they're experiencing emotionally. They so much wanted to believe that everything was okay when it wasn't. The sense of worthlessness 
and guilt can really impact, along with kind of shame and humiliation, can impact the scale being useful, or even our assessments being useful. We have to use all these tools together. There's not one foolproof way. So the Edinburgh, as you see, and I'm, I'm kind of zeroing in on the tenth one. The tenth question, all the other questions are very important, I'm not trying to minimize, but I'm just thinking about, uh, well, being a parent in the pediatrician's office. You guys have a very impressive workflow. I'm, I'm humbled by the number of patients you see per, per day and the complexity that you must see. And here you are hitting a snag in the, in, in the middle of the river, right, where a mom is having difficulties. Definitely, definitely, what do you do? Zero on number 10 first off of the Edinburgh. Is there a safety issue? That would be important. Heather's situation was an emergency. It's actually, in a way, our worst case scenario. So it's not a mom that has a mild depressive syndrome and might need an evaluation in two weeks. It really is, in Heather's case, an emergency. So if she was to have accurately said that, yes, quite often I have thoughts of harming myself or others, that might be an, an evaluation in the emergency room as a next step. And I'm just saying that up front, that I think if, if you're making an assessment in the office, it really is a life or death assessment. Try to zero in on safety as the number one thing. So, so when screening, and, and, and this is, um, a long-winded way that we really have to do screening, right? Is screening enough? The answer is no. So you're looking at non-verbals. This is Dr. Zajac's slide, it, the still face experiment with the video, it's so powerful. It, it shows that a lot of times verbally, mom might not be able to say what's going on. But non-verbally, you have a lot of cues, especially if you have a pre-existing relationship with this mother, to be able to assess is someone at their baseline, or is there a difference? If there's a difference, if you're seeing a difference, that opens the door for some questioning. It doesn't have to be long and drawn out. You make contact, you kind of observe the mom, you pause, you use active listening. <coughs> you see some change. You look tired today. How's sleep been? Now, a lot of moms, as you know, aren't sleeping well. But some will say that, you know, I'm getting some napping while the baby's uh, uh, sleeping and I'm, I'm getting through. Others may not have slept for one or two days, or they may burst out into tears, or they may share a little bit more. To encourage that sharing is really just as powerful, if not more powerful, than reviewing what's on the Edinburgh. This doesn't have to take a lot of time. Your experienced clinicians, you might sense this right away. Use your intuition, use your skills. And then you might ask some questions. These are just some basic questions you have your own. Um, have you experienced any change in your mood? How are you feeling today? What changes are you seeing? And you just watch. You watch her flatten affect. You watch her avoidance of, on, of eye contact. You watch the interchange between the mom and the infant. If they're quiet, if there's poverty of speech, if there's a real change in behavior, that might single that, that you might have to think about the next step. So what would the next step be? Again, if it's a safety issue, you'd want to think about the emergency room. You'd want to think about seeing if the mom or if there's some supports available to facilitate that. If it's something that's not emergent, then you have time. So time allows you, like in Dr. Spiegelman's practice, you have a, a list of providers, right, east of the river. You might offer that list. Um, you might you might think of our program over at the Institute of Living. 
but really getting the mom to agree to a next step. Using collateral data, talking to dad if dad's available, calling dad if things are more intense. There's a lot of different options here. I don't pretend to say how you should treat someone like this in your office, but to think this through, to have maybe a plan, to have your office be aware if you're in a more emergent situation, much like if, if, a, if a child came in and had a serious medical issue, you have a plan in place. Think about it from a similar way with moms. How would we intervene if this mom needed immediate help? And, and, and then a more routine or maybe even urgent situation, you could call the peripartum mood disorder program. There's also, um, as, as Dr. Zajac said, there's infant parent child psychotherapy happening. Here's our number. Um, this is also another option for moms that might have more time and, uh, and have interest to think about ways that they might find attunement with their child. And something I'm going to mention that I'm not an expert on, but I actually have a couple of flyers, is what Dr. Spiegelman said. So this is reimbursable. I, I have handouts here. You may know this already. So it's, it's, it's something that is an expected standard of care, something that the state um, validates. So you're in a, a pretty good place as far as being able to hand out to Edinburgh and spend a little bit of time with mom and dad to see if the family is in crisis and needs immediate support, to see if they need a referral to a provider, to kind of take an extra step. The dividends that this would pay is not only to the mom or dad, but obviously to the child and family. 